this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me uh, to Mark uh, chapter 2. And we'll be reading from verse 1. And there we read, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. He said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And we trust God have a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Our theme for this morning is whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And if I was to ask you to think of someone in your life who embodied that phrase. Someone who was always willing to do whatever it takes. I wonder who you would think of. I wonder who would pop into your mind. That type of person, they walk a fine line between determined and stubborn. You're never quite sure which side of the line they fall on. For me, it would be my dad. He's the person that best uh, symbolizes this phrase for me. Someone who is willing to do whatever it takes. Never giving up. Always continuing to try and uh, set out, uh, to try and achieve the task at hand. You know, I got a glimpse of this when I, me and my, uh, when we first got married. Not when we first got married, when we be married once. Uh, but when we were first married, my wife and I bought a house in Hamilton. And we spent many, many months out looking around for the perfect property, some place that we could put a stamp on it and make our own, and some place that we could grow into uh, for a few years. And so we quickly discovered that I had what I liked in a house and my wife had what she liked in a house and there was nothing uh, similar about it. And so we had to come to an understanding and that understanding was that my wife will always win. And so, and so we got uh, a house that Cheryl really loved and there was just a real problem with this house. In fact, there was many problems with this house. Everywhere you looked, there was a new problem. There was holes in the roof. There was walls falling down. There were beams, joists in the floor that needed to be replaced. There was waterfalls coming down the dining room wall. It was a real mess. And so I saw this house and thought, do you know who can do a good job here? My dad. That's, that's who I'm going to need. I'm going to need someone who's willing to do whatever it takes. And my dad's background is in, is in joinery and, and construction. And so he came 
and we started to work together. We bought the house in February, it had to be done by June, and we started uh, to turn this house around as quickly as we could. And so evenings and weekends all looked the same for those, those few months where we were in the house and we were working side by side. And the days started the same as well when we would decide what job we were going to do. And I would turn to my dad and I would say, how long do you think this job is going to take? Always the same answer, about three hours. That, that, that's what it took everything. If you, it didn't matter if you were replacing the roof, if you were painting a wall, it didn't matter. Three hours was the standard set of time. And so we'd work for an hour and a half, and then obviously my dad's construction, so he needs his tea break an hour and a half in. And so we would do that, and then we'd have another hour and a half, and it would get closer and closer to the three hours, and I would see there's still an awful lot to get done here. Maybe the three-hour timeline isn't, isn't working. So I would say to my dad, how long do you think it is now? Well, another half an hour. Again, the standard answer, three hours plus half an hour. That was, that was, the, that was the formula that he worked to. And so we'd get past the three hours, past the four hours, past the five hours, and I start to say to my dad, you know what, maybe we can leave this and move on to something else. And he would look at me and say, how dare you? <laughs> that was not an option to leave that. I mean, we, will, we will get this done. And then after another few hours, I'll say, maybe we leave this and we'll, we'll bring a professional in to do this job. And of course, I didn't, I didn't know what I was, you do, you do, you know the mistake <laughs> I've made already. That was not going to happen either. No, no, we are going to do whatever it takes to get this, this job done. That, was who, that is who uh, my dad is. I wonder if you have someone like that in your life. If I was to say, if I was to be preaching in Australia or New Zealand this morning, which I wouldn't say I would prefer, but it would be nice uh, to be there, they would say to me, oh, you mean someone like a digger? Now, I don't know if anyone knows who the diggers are in Australia and New Zealand, but they are the Anzac diggers, the Australia and New Zealand Army Corps. And there are people, a, a group of people, that fought in the First World War and they are cherished and loved throughout Australia and New Zealand, so much so that they have their own holiday. And these diggers were the men sent to fight in the Battle of Gallipoli, which I'm sure many people have heard of. And the people of uh, the Australia and New Zealand Army Corps were sent to Gallipoli to fight in Turkey on the First World War. And they, the people of New Zealand and Australia were strangely happy to go and fight in this war because being a relatively young nation, this was the first chance that they had to go and serve their country in this way. And so they were happy to get on the boat and travel across to Turkey and to fight in this war. But there was a huge problem that these men came up against. And the problem was that the, the battle that they were sent to fight in, it was unwinnable. There was no way that they were going to be able to win that battle that the odds were stacked up against them. They were fighting in the wrong area. They, their, their opponent had far greater firepower. There was no way that they were going to win that battle. I wonder what you would do in that circumstance. I'll be honest, I might turn around and go back, go back again. But not these men. These men started to dig into their trenches and they fought as hard as they could. And you know, they never fought for the victory because they knew that they couldn't have the victory. What they fought for was they fought for each other. They fought for the person next to them and the person on the other side. That's who they fought for. And you know, diggers were known for having three main characteristics. Diggers were always willing to help out a friend who needed a hand. Diggers had a never give up attitude. And diggers didn't worry 
about what anyone else thought. If you're a digger in Australia and New Zealand, this is what it means. You're always willing to help a friend. You'll never give up. And you don't care what anyone else thinks. When I think about diggers, my mind goes to Mark chapter 2, where we have these friends who are literally digging to bring their friend to Jesus. And we're just going to spend the, the time that we have this morning in these few verses and just seeing from this very, very well-known passage, if there are perhaps some, some new things uh, that we'll be able to see and perhaps we'll be um, encouraged by some old things uh, in here as well as, this, as we go through this very well-known Bible passage. So we join uh, Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 2 and they are returning to Capernaum which this chapter is saying that Jesus, uh, that people recognize as being Jesus' home, the place that he would be regularly returning to. And this is a very, very strange place for Jesus to be calling home. Capernaum is not the place that you would expect the Son of God or the Messiah or the Christ or the people that all of these Jewish people are looking for. You would not expect him to be setting up home, to be setting up his, his headquarters in a place like Capernaum. Capernaum was a place of sinners. It's where people went to, to enter into debauchery, to get drunk, to forget about the rest of their world and to, and to have a, a time just focusing in on themselves. It's where people would go uh, for, their, for their holidays. It was the Ibiza or the Benidorm of, the, of its day where people would go, um, no offence if you go to Ibiza or Benidorm, it's just popped into my head there. Um, but it's a place that people would go where there wouldn't be a great reputation about the reasons why people, people go to that, that particular place. And yet Jesus went there and he called it his home. Jesus made his home with sinners. You would expect the Son of God to be setting up his headquarters in Jerusalem, at the temple, with all of the great religious leaders, where the royalty are. That's where the Son of God is going to set up his headquarters. But no, he goes to Capernaum and he surrounds himself with sinners because that is where there was the greatest need. And the light shines brightest, where? In the darkness. And so that is where he has gone and that is where he has set up his base because Jesus is interested in sinners. Jesus has a heart for the sinner and so he goes to Capernaum and he sets up his base there. And he comes back after some days. When we get the context from the chapters before, what we realize is that Jesus has been off on mission for many days, many weeks, perhaps many months before this, he's been off and he's been performing miracles. He's been telling people about his father's kingdom. He's been preaching to the multitudes and he comes back home. He's been on mission and he returns home. I wonder if any of you have ever had that experience in your life where you've been off on mission. In whatever context, perhaps you've been away serving on the mission field Perhaps you've just been running a holiday club or you've been involved in children's work or youth work or you've been away for a few weeks, you've been away from your home and you've just been focused on mission and then you return home. What's that feeling that you get when you return home? Absolute exhaustion. Like you've never felt before. You know, I know this feeling of exhaustion well because this is actually my life. I live my life on mission 
Eight years ago, I felt called by God to leave my uh, employment with the YMCA, uh, where I was uh, a youth work manager, to set up a youth ministry here in central Scotland, starting in Grangemouth uh, and then moving further, further afield from there. And so for the last eight years, I've spent my life in, on mission, working uh, with children and young people and families and communities and churches across central Scotland. Now we get to the point where we work with around 600 young people a year. 400 of them would be uh, 7 to 11 year olds. 150 young people that we work with are 11 to 16. And 50 young people that we work with are 16 to 25 year olds who aren't in education, employment or training. And we support them uh, into positive destinations. And we work with churches from as far as Bishop Briggs to... Madison, um, and uh, encouraging and equipping the church to reach out and to serve children and young people. And it's exhausting. The reason that it's exhausting is because there's such a need. I don't know if you recognize this need that there are uh, with children, young people, and families today, but let me tell you, it is a tough time to be a young person. There are so many things that they have that perhaps we think, oh, they've got it easy. But actually, many young people are trapped inside their own minds. And they find it so difficult. One in ten children today in 2019 say that they feel unable to cope with the school day. One in ten. Two or three children in every classroom going to school not, re- not, re- not knowing how they're going to get to the end of that school day. Not knowing how they're going to make it to the bell ringing at three o'clock. Almost two-thirds of children say that they worry all the time. This atmosphere this day that we live in today there's just such anxiety with young people that they for that two-thirds of them say that they are constantly worrying about something 70 percent of children and adolescents who experience mental health problems have not had appropriate intervention interventions at a sufficiently early age children who are bullied at 13 are more than twice as likely to have depression at age 18 75 percent of mental health problems are established by the age of 24. There are 1 million children growing up without a father figure in the UK today. 1 million. To put that into context, there are 1 million children and young people in Scotland. That's how many people are growing up without a father figure in the UK today. A young person is more likely to have a television in their bedroom than a father in the home by the time they're 14. This is where we're at. This definition of a father figure is a government-appointed definition. What the government says a father figure is, is a positive male role model that meets with the young person more than twice a year. That's what it means to be a father in 2019. This is what young people are facing. 825,000 children live in a family with domestic violence and over 100,000 children live in a family with a toxic trio of domestic violence, mental health and alcohol or substance abuse. One in four young people in Scotland are living in poverty. One in five children in the UK suffer from food insecurity, one of the highest rates in Europe. One in five children open up the kitchen cupboards not expecting there to be anything there to eat. And it's not just the it's not the parents' fault. In many of these circumstances, one in three parents from low-income families have missed a meal so their children can eat in this in the school holidays. This is the issues that young people and families are facing. Just a snapshot of where they're at, and of course, we know beneath all of that, there's a much greater 
need for them, and that's the need of salvation. And we work with so many children and young people who are just without hope, who don't have any idea what the future holds. And so we bring and we bring practical support, but we bring something much greater. We bring Jesus. And we say, look, this is where I find my hope. This is where my future is. It's not based on my circumstances, but it's based on this man who lived 2,000 years ago and died on the cross for your sin and for mine and lives today. This is where I find my hope and this is where I find my future. And that's a little glimpse uh, into Go Youth Trust. I would be be more than happy to come and speak in greater detail about that work at another time. But this is the need. And like we say, meeting this need makes us feel just exhausted. Absolutely exhausted. And so when Jesus comes back from mission, after he's away for these two weeks performing miracles and teaching, he comes home and Jesus, Jesus is human. Jesus feels exhaustion just like you and I would feel exhaustion. And he comes home and what does he want to do? Presumably he wants to go to sleep. He wants to rest. He wants to eat. He wants to recharge his batteries. But then people hear that Jesus is at home. Not only do they hear it, there are people out reporting it. This is getting spread all the way through Capernaum. Jesus is back. And so the people are rushing towards them, coming towards him, (laughs) coming into the house, so much so that there was no more room. Jesus is tired. Jesus has done his mission. He just wants to rest. He just wants to recuperate. And then the people come. And what does he do? Does he do what you or I would do? Does he jump behind the couch? Does he think, do they know the lights are on? Will they know that I'm in here? No, he doesn't do any of that. He welcomes them in and he starts to preach to them. Why? Because he has compassion towards them. Why? Because he sees sheep without a shepherd. And he wants to spend time with them and he wants to preach the word to them because he knows that they are his mission. They are why he is in Capernaum. He is here for the sinners and he wants to give, he wants to give them compassion. He wants to bring the lost to him and so he starts to preach and the people gather around so much so that there is no more space within the building and then here come some friends four friends carrying a paralytic a man who cannot walk lying on a mat and these four friends hear that jesus is in town and so they grab their friend and they rush him towards jesus this paralytic would have had no quality of life. He would have been quite literally trapped in his own body, unable to move. He would have been physically trapped, but he would have been socially trapped as well. There would have been no options for him to to get to know the community around about him. He would have had no mobility. He would have had no quality of life whatsoever. The man had nothing except from four fine, faithful friends. And these friends recognize the problem and they recognize the answer to the problem as well. And the answer was Jesus. And so they picked up their friend and they charged towards Jesus and they could not get near of him because of the crowd. What would you do at that point? If you're bringing your friend to Jesus and you see that there's just no way to get near him at that moment in time, what do you do? Turn around. She say, do you know what? It'll be quieter tonight. Let's try tonight. Or maybe it'll be quieter tomorrow. We can try again tomorrow. 
not these men. No, they knew that their friend needed Jesus and they were going to do whatever it took to bring their friend to him. So they climbed the walls and they got up on the roof and they started to dig. These men really embodied what we're talking about when we think about diggers. Always willing to help out a friend who need a hand. Have a never give up attitude and not, didn't worry about what anyone else thought. These men climbed up onto the roof and they removed the roof from the building. They removed the roof. Now in Sunday school, when this was explained to me, you know, I love my Sunday school teachers, but they got it wrong when they were explaining it to me. You know, they were talking about moving palm leaves off and just sort of spreading the way in order to open up this roof. No, these roofs, these, these roofs were solid. This was stone. This was, this was tough work to get through one of these roofs uh, in Capernaum at this time. And so they got to it. They did all that they could to make this opening and they literally started to dig through the roof. Now this house belonged to someone. It wasn't Jesus. It wasn't, I know Jesus called it home, but it wasn't his house. No way did he own it. He doesn't, didn't have a place to rest his head. We know Jesus didn't, didn't own anything other than the clothes on his back. Belonged to someone. And they just started to dig through the roof. You know, there's a good chance at the end of this, these four fine faithful friends, someone grabs their necks and throws them into prison. You know, they've destroyed someone's house. Or if that doesn't happen, um, at, at, at least they'll be willing to pay the price to fix this house. You know, the roof needs to go back on. And these friends were, must have been willing to pay that price. Or they were going to lose respect. They would be known as the four fine faithful vandals that they came and destroyed someone's house. But they didn't care. They were willing to pay the price. They were willing to make a sacrifice to bring their friend to Jesus. If it cost them financially, if it cost them their freedom, if it cost them their respect, they didn't care. They were willing to pay that price. I wonder if you hold a gospel meeting in Bowness Baptist Church and the place is just full. There's no seats. There's no space on the carpet. There's no space up here. It's just packed. And you're sitting and you're listening to the gospel and suddenly this window is smashed and someone sticks their head up with a big grin on their face saying, I just wanted to hear what was happening. I just wanted to hear what was being said. I wonder how you would feel. Let me tell you, you'd be livid. I'd be livid if it happened in my building as well. But I tell you, that's wrong. That's not how I should feel. Because I should be willing to pay the price of a pane of glass in order to bring the gospel to someone. I should be happy that this person has recognized that there's something on offer here that they're not getting anywhere else. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to access that. We should be willing to make sacrifices to bring the gospel to people. We should be willing to make sacrifices to bring our friends to Jesus. And so that brings me to my question for this morning. When is the last time that you made a sacrifice to bring someone to Jesus? When's the last time that you gave something up to do that? When is the last time that you made the kind of sacrifice that we're reading about here in Mark chapter 2? I'll be honest with you. 
says, says evangelist. On, well, it doesn't say it on my passport because it doesn't have it on the passports anymore. But I mean, that's what I'm known as. It's my job title is an evangelist. And I can't think of the last time that I really gave something up that cost me in order to bring Jesus to my friends or to the people around about me. We live in such a blessed country that the opportunities are really around about us where we don't have to fear for our lives. We don't have to fear particularly about um, our freedom because the opportunities are right in front of us. It can be difficult to think about a time where we have have had to make a sacrifice. What does it cost us? Time? Maybe standing? Maybe we're worried about what people might think think of us if we were to share our our faith with people in the shop or at the bus stop or or um, or wherever or in our school or in our workplace or wherever it is that that God places us. What really is it going to cost us? When we think about paying a price to bring the gospel to people. We might think about someone like Dr. David Livingston, someone who literally gave up his whole life in order to bring the gospel to people who had not heard it. You know, David Livingston spent his life in Africa and regularly came back to the UK in order to to, to share what was happening in Africa and to share about uh, what God was doing there. And, you know, towards the end of his life, he was giving a lecture at Oxford or Cambridge. I can never remember which one. And someone stuck their hand up during a Q&A at the university and said, Dr. Livingston, do you never regret how much you have sacrificed to bring the gospel to Africa? Do you ever regret everything that's been taken from you in order to share the gospel? And David Livingston said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. David Livingston says he never made a sacrifice. David Livingston, the man battled with illness all of his life in Africa. He hardly saw his family throughout his whole life. He continued to come back to to Great Britain where he was treated as a celebrity. He could have just went once and he would have been famous and he would have been rich for the rest of his life. But yet he kept on going back to Africa and serving there. And eventually his life was literally... Uh, was, was taken from him as he died uh, as a result of these illnesses. And the people that he served loved him so much that they cut open his chest and they ripped out his heart. And that was a nice, nice thing that they did as they buried his heart in Africa and sent his body um, back to London. He never made a sacrifice. I wonder what sacrifices we could point to when it comes to sharing our faith with those around about us. Because that's what these men did. They showed their faith. In verse 5 of Mark chapter 2, we see when Jesus saw their faith. 
not just the paralytic's faith, but their faith, the faith of the men, their friends as well, the faith of, faith of the five men. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. No one asked about sins. No one said anything about sin. What's Jesus talking about? Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't want his sins forgiven. He wants to walk. But you know, faith brings forgiveness. Faith equals forgiveness. And the men have brought their friend and their friend has come knowing that this Jesus has the power of God. That he has the power to heal. And Jesus says, I'll heal you. I'll heal you from your, uh, fr- from your lameness and I'll he- heal you from your sins because faith equals forgiveness. This is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. If we want to experience the same forgiveness, if we want to experience the same healing from Jesus that this paralytic experience, and it can only come in one way, by grace, through faith. The grace part has already been dealt with. God has already lavished his grace upon us by sending his only son to die on the cross. And he went there for the sins of the world, the sins that separate us from God. Jesus has went to the cross to pay the price for those sins, to take away the sin and the shame associated with those sins. That is why Jesus went to the cross. God has given us these great riches through his son. Jesus has dealt with our sins. Three days after the cross, he rose from the dead and he experienced this new life and this new resurrection that each of us can enter into as well, that we can have a new life by putting our faith in Jesus. Someone that I like to like to read is a man called Dr. J. Vernon McGee, long since, long since passed away, uh, but an American Bible teacher. And he said, the only limitation to God's omnipotence is unbelief. The only thing that will definitely stop God from doing a work in our life is if we don't believe that he is able to do it. When we have our faith in God, when we understand and we believe what he is capable of, we can experience so much more of his power and his blessings. This is what Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven. But the scribes and the Pharisees are sitting there in verse 6 and they're questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, we're still quite early in Jesus' ministry and the Pharisees and the scribes, they're still trying to get a handle on who Jesus is. They like the healing part and they like the people coming around about him. They like all of this, but then he starts to say things about sin. And they're like, why can't you just leave that out? Just help people. Just heal people. Don't bring, don't bring sin into it. There's no need for that you're blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone and so these men are crying out to Jesus well in fact in their hearts they're saying you're you're so wrong who can forgive sins but God alone I know these scribes they're dead right they're absolutely right in what they're saying but they're absolutely wrong at the same time who can forgive sins but God alone no one No one can forgive sins but God alone. But what they don't realize is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. 
and they don't realize that Jesus has the power to forgive sins because he is fully God. They don't recognize this. And Jesus perceives in his spirit what they are thinking. And so he starts to question them. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Why do you ask yourself this? I mean, what's easier for me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? What is easier for me to say? Now, surely it's easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. Because if he says that, how are they going to know? How are they going to know whether the man's sins are forgiven or not? There's no litmus test for a, a sinner. There's nothing that they can do to say that hasn't happened. It's not like a halo appears on the man's head as soon as his sins are forgiven. There's no physical evidence that that has happened. But if he says to the man, take up your bed and walk, and nothing happens, then they know Jesus is a charlatan. They know that he doesn't have the power that he claims to have. They know that there's nothing special about him at all. And so Jesus says, what's easier for me to say? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what happens? The man stands up immediately, picks up his bed and he walks out before them all. And the people recognize that there's something different about Jesus. They recognize that this is no ordinary man and that what he claims to be able to do, he can do. And everyone looks at Jesus amazed and says, we never saw anything like this. We've never met anyone like this before. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us this morning, that we will look at Jesus and with one voice cry out, I've never met anyone like Jesus before. No one has ever amazed me as much as Jesus has amazed me. I've never experienced love like I find in Jesus. I've never experienced forgiveness like I find in Jesus. He gives me everything and all he asks from me is faith. That's all he asks from me. These men were willing to do whatever it takes to bring their friend to Jesus. But there's someone who embodies the spirit even more than these four fine faithful friends, even more than my dad, even more than anyone that you might know. The person who was truly and ultimately willing to do whatever it takes was Jesus. He is the only one that can say, I have given it all. I have taken the biggest stoop. I have left highest heaven to lowest earth. I have lived for 33 and a half years being rejected by so many people, including my own family. I have had people trying to trip me up and arrest me and kill me. And I've done it all for you. I've done it all for you. I've given my everything. I've done whatever it took to redeem you and to offer you this grace. And all I ask for is for you to reach out in faith and accept me as your saviour. Jesus is the one who is willing to do whatever it takes. Let me just close by going back to Gallipoli, if that's all right, and thinking about just one of these uh, men getting on the boat to, to go to Turkey to fight in this battle from Australia. And his name was Elvis Jenkins, and Elvis, like many of these men, uh, was thrilled with the opportunity to go and to serve his country in this way. 
And as he got on the boat, he was marching towards the, uh, towards the pier. And there was a group of people with a table handing out Bibles. And it was the Bible Society. Handing out these Bibles to every man boarding the boat. And Elvis took the Bible, put it in his pocket and forgot all about it. And he, was, he joined the battlefield on the 25th of April 1915. And then a few weeks later, on the 7th of May, he was fighting at the fiercest part of the battle, convinced that his life was minutes away from ending. And he looked up and he saw a great shell coming from across the battlefield and it exploded just a few mere metres away from him. And these lead balls came out of the shell and started to head everywhere. And one came and struck Elvis right in his chest and he fell to the ground. And then 10 seconds later, he opened his eyes and he couldn't believe that he'd opened his eyes. He didn't know what had happened. And he looked at where the shell had hit and he took out his Bible that was given to the Bible Society. And he saw that this lead ball was wedged inside the Bible. That had come in the back and it had went through the Psalms and it had went through Revelation and it went through the Epistles and it had went through the Acts and it had stopped where? Stopped right at the Gospels. And the gospel saved Elvis's life. Do we really believe that today? That the gospel still has the power to save? It still has the power to bring transformation. When we look at the, 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 the issues and the hardship that so many people in our community are going through, do we still really believe that the gospel is the answer? Do we really believe that we need to take the gospel to every person around about us? And what's more, do we believe that it can save. The book of Romans chapter 1 we read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written the righteous shall live by faith. We still have this power. We still have this explosive power of the gospel. Let's not be ashamed of it. Let's take it as far as we can. Let's shout it as loudly as we can and ask people to accept it in faith and to live by faith. I pray that that's the experience of everyone here this morning, that we have all been amazed at the person of who Jesus is, that we've accepted him in faith and that now we're taking that good news as far and as wide as we can. Let's sing our closing hymn which is hymn number 2085. <laughs> to the 